Thanks, Charlie. It's good to see you. Happy Easter. Grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. It's good to have you here. If you're a guest, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and I am excited to teach today. Uh, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 3. Man, I'm excited. Easter's back to normal, I think, right? Kind of? Maybe not? <laughs> no, we have a lot of people that aren't here. We're, I mean, we're talking to a camera, so Easter's not totally normal. Although I'm not sure what a normal Easter even looks like. I was thinking about this last week and the week before over the years, how Easter, what like a normal Easter is, how it's changed. When I was about this tall, Easter was about not just finding the eggs in the backyard, but the really hard ones that they spent a lot of time trying to hide and be real smart, right? It was about uh, peeps. I was exposed to peeps for the first time. I'm pretty sure they're still in my digestive tract somewhere. Um, uh, uh, chocolate bunnies, the hollow ones. Y'all remember how ripped off you were the first time you took a bite and realized it wasn't solid? It was hollow. It didn't stop me from eating it, right? Nor did it you. But ham, that was another thing. Clip-on ties, this was my existence. That's what, what a normal Easter would have been when I was this big. When I was this big, normal Easter looked a little different, right? Still food, more ham, still clip-on ties, right? Um, it was a day of family. It was a day of trying to find some sports on TV. Good luck with that, right? Three-day weekends, four-day weekends, that was a normal Easter. Today, a normal Easter is just a physical service, <laughs> right? A physical service where we can all hang out. And the one day I wear a suit, no tie anymore, not doing any more clip-on ties. But what does your normal look like, right? New normal is a phrase that's been kind of cliched to death over time, over the last year. How many times have you heard new normal and thought, I think I know what that means, but I'm tired of hearing about it, right? It, it, new normal is a, not just a cliche term today, but that's something that showed up on the scene right after World War I, if you didn't know this. That was the first time we could find any written evidence of that term being used. And that's because that war was such a giant disruption to everyone's normal that it cast a new normal moving forward. And then it kind of disappeared in history, and then it would show up around the dot-com bubble burst. That's when people would say, new normal. We would hear it a lot. 9-11 started a new normal, the great financial crisis of the early 2000s. That was going to build a new normal for us. And now today, because of the pandemic, we are in an Easter in the middle of what we're calling the new normal. And, and a new normal basically being just yesterday, Plus a few things, but also minus a few things, right? I mean, let's face it. It's probably a true statement to say that we will all keep some masks handy from here on out, whether it's in a junk drawer or a glove compartment of some kind. You're going to keep it to where you don't have to buy them off of eBay whenever COVID-26 comes out, right? You're not panicking anytime anyone points a, a, a hand-free thermometer at your head. I remember when the, when the pandemic was brand new and I would walk up to somebody with one of those, I'd just duck my head like this until somebody said, why are you ducking your head? I was like, I don't know. Just, just shoot me right here, right? We can all kind of eyeball how far six foot is from here going on. We, lots of things. I mean, have you learned how to mute yourself on Zoom yet? Is that part of your new normal? Don't lie. You don't know how to mute yourself on Zoom. Curbside pickup, not so bad after all. All these new things, and then some things that did not come back, right? Some things that did not return to our normal. And listen, our new normal today, it's only normal until something, what, disrupts it down the road and it becomes a new, new normal. I mean, I am old enough at the age of 
45. I am old enough to remember a day where I would buy a plane ticket at the counter and walk unimpeded from that place with a paper boarding pass straight to the plane. No checkpoints. No security checkpoints. I mean, that, that, was, that, that was the normal back then, right? Now the new normal is take your shoes off, take your belt off, take your attitude out, take your laptop out of the bag, take your battery out of the laptop, sing a little song. I mean, you've got to do so much just to get to the plane right now because that's our new normal, right, until something else disrupts it. And then we have a brand new new normal. But how did your old normal survive the pandemic, your 2019 normal? How did it make it? Did all your dreams come back? What about your relationships? Did they all come back? Did your depression leave? Your emotions stabilize? You see, no matter whether it's an old normal or a new normal, all of our lives lit, it sits somewhere in this tension between despair and hope, hopelessness and hope. Because the world is going to change its normal and its status quo all the time. We're always going to have new memes, new styles, new teams to pack into our bracket system. But our normal days are always going to kind of like a pendulum swing back and forth between hope and despair. And that's usually going to be dictated to you and me by what's happening in our world. Not really inside of us, but what's happening outside of us. So despair and hope are going to be something that it, it's, it's handed to us. From the outside world, at least in our minds, that's how it works. You know what's interesting about hope and despair, right? Is that there was a there was a day in human history where despair didn't exist, where it was just predominantly hope. Hope was the base note that carried everything, that was in the background of every day of every second. It was hope. And no one even knew what despair felt like. And that was the day when Adam and Eve would walk in the cool of the garden. But then after the fall, they had a new normal. And their normal became our normal, where hope is no longer constant, but it's episodic. And now what is more constant is going to feel a lot more like despair. The Bible calls this normal, this new normal that came from the garden, calls it the evil present age. Okay, it's probably a phrase you've heard. It's in the New Testament quite a bit. We see Paul aim right at it in Galatians 1. Stay where you're at in Genesis 3. If you're in Genesis 3, just stay there. But in Galatians 1, Paul says, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. You see, we're on a timeline of human history. And it just so happens to be in this specific age called the present evil age, which is every day between Genesis 3 and the day that Jesus comes back to reverse Genesis 3 by establishing the kingdom that Jesus himself inaugurated by his own work. And we call it evil because the enemy has this freedom to roam, as we looked at last week, and steal, kill, and destroy. It's the only three things that the enemy has on his business card. He comes to steal your dreams, to steal your hopes, to destroy everything that is precious and a treasure to you, and to kill. That's all he wants to do. And this whole world sits underneath this limited power, this restricted power that this enemy has. We see that in 1 John. And then in Ephesians, we saw last week that we all kind of walk under the spell of the power of this age, the spirit of this evil age. We're synced up. 
with the evil age. I mean, there was a day before Jesus, before I met Jesus, that freedom looked like bondage and bondage looked like freedom to me. And I couldn't tell the difference between one and the other. Now listen, this is why I'm telling you all this. This has everything to do with Easter. Everything to do with Easter. Easter was foreseen by God, foretold by God when he cursed the dragon in the garden. Okay? This is what we're going to see in Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen for you. This is the main text. It won't be the only text we look at today, but this is the one that I think is going to elevate Christ and show him more compelling and more clear for all of us. The word of the Lord is not just speaking to us today, but he is cursing the serpent in the original setting. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity, that's hostility by the way, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, it's a very valuable passage for us. Because from that moment until this moment, there is this furious battle that rages between the seed of Eve ending in Jesus and the seed of the enemy. But the result is promised here in this passage. That there will be a day that although the heel of Christ himself, who is the ultimate uber seed of Eve, is bruised, he will have his foot on the throat of this dragon in the garden. This is what a lot of scholars call the proto-evangelion, right? It's just a long word that means proto-gospel, the first good news. This is the first time we see the good news preached in the gospel, and it's in Genesis 3. God, in this moment, would do something pretty interesting because he's not just identifying rebellion and he's not just cursing the rebellion. He, amazingly, is going to remedy the problem himself. Instead of just taking the etch-a-sketch and moving it upside down and shaking it and erasing everything and starting all over, he is going to reverse his very own curse. You see, God is going to demand much from us, what we could not deliver, which is a perfect life. And then he's going to supply the demand by himself coming as Christ for you and for me. You see, the gospel is a great story, and it does not finish with you and me in Christ entering this garden again. We don't re-enter this paradise that we have described in Genesis. But he is building a city that is far better than the garden. It's described in Revelation 21 if you want to read it on your own time. But he does say before he leaves that he is going to prepare a place for you and me. This is a place, by the way, that cannot be taken from you. It's a perfect place, a place of hospitality and belonging, of connection and benevolence and glory. And it's waiting. But the road from a broken garden to this place of belonging, it passes right through an empty tomb. It passes right through it. You see, Genesis 3.15 holds the entire story of God together. It binds your Bible together. Everything. Everything that you read in the Bible is bound by this promise that the serpent would bruise our hero and yet our hero would crush the serpent. Every character in your Bible, every event in this Bible is a tale and a story that orbits this larger saga of God's advancing and progressive redemptive plan. All of it. I mean, just consider that. Some scholars say that there are between 600 and 800 stories in your Bible. 
I don't know, I'll take their word for it. It's a lot, right? A lot of stories in your Bible written by over 30 people from different continents spanning over 1,500 years with different literary styles, all, all painting for you and pick a picture of one story, one mega arc, one saga, one adventure. Just consider that for a moment. Listen, don't read your Bible as if it's a string of pearls. Valuable things that are together but not really connected. The little bits and pieces of things that we can pull out and maybe obey differently or look at differently. It is not like that. It is one storyline put together from beginning to end. Just think about some of the main characters in your Bible, events in your Bible. Think about King David. King David's got a large story arc in your Old Testament. If you read, you could read quite a bit about King David. It's a great story. It's a king. King after God's own heart who would come and lead, passionately lead this nation to be distinct among all the other nations. As a nation belonging to God, his people, in the face of pagan nations that would fight and resist, and they in turn would trust God and fight and resist. It's a great story. And it's not really about David. It's not in there to draw our attention to David, to be enamored with David. It's a story that orbits God's redemptive plan. Because there would be one day where another king would come, the last king, who would not just be after God's own heart, but he would come from God's very heart. And he too would lead a nation to stand apart from the pagan nations of the world and be brilliantly apparent and clear and compelling as a city is on a hill. It's about Jesus. And it's about this fight that started in Genesis 3 and will finish. Or look at Jonah. Jonah's one of my favorites, right? Jonah's a story about a prophet evangelist who doesn't even want to go and preach the gospel to people that don't even want to hear it, right? That's kind of the storyline. And as he goes, he finds himself into this storm. He enters this storm he doesn't want to be in. And by the hands of his peers, he's thrown into the water, and he ends up in the belly of a fish for three days, right? It's a great story, and it's not about Jonah. It's not a story about obedience either, by the way. It's a story that walks hand in hand with God's saga of a progressive and advancing, redemptive plan where Christ would come a better Jonah, a better prophet, a better evangelist who would not go unwillingly but would willingly enter the storm of mankind to, yes, preach a gospel and live a gospel for people who also don't deserve it while he, at the hands of his peers, are not tossed into the belly of a fish but the belly of the earth to again emerge in three days. It's a story that really walks hand in hand with the story that started in Genesis 3. Or Pharaoh, Right? We could pick a villain. Same thing. Pharaoh, who is this tool in God's hands, yes, to reveal God's power and might. He's also a tool in the enemy's hands, the serpent's hands, to slaughter God's people. Because Pharaoh is going to chase God's precious people down all the way to the edge of the sea where death was for sure. But God is so powerful, he brings his people through the waters, symbolic for baptism today, brings them through the waters. The waters crush the enemy and they leave a brand new nation. It's the first time they're called Israel. It's the first time they're the people of God as Israel. It's a great story. And yet the story orbits the saga of God's redemption. God preserving us, you and me, in the face of, of a villain much worse than Pharaoh, but death himself. And not only do we pass through the waters to see our pursuer squashed behind us, 
but we leave with a new identity, belonging to a new people. You see, it's, this, it's a great story. They're all great stories. And they're about a much bigger story. Job, an ark, a temple, Esther, a lamb, bread, a bronze serpent, Samson, water, a wedding feast, a burning furnace, a burning bush, a lion's den, a flood, a prison, a foot washing, a cross, and a tomb. There are no, hear me, there are no wasted words and there are no spare seconds in the great big story of God. None. No, no wasted words. This is his great big story. And he is progressively advancing his plan of rescue and redemption. And it is all pinned together by what we just read in Genesis 3. By the enemy trying to destroy mankind, eventually trying to destroy Jesus himself, and Jesus crushing him, crushing him. For your good and his glory at his cost. One big storyline, many episodes. And then your boring life. And my boringly predictable life. Where we move slowly. It feels like slow motion. And we're full of questions and fears and insecurities and bad moods and baggage. Boy, do we have baggage, right? And we're sitting somewhere between despair and hope ourselves. But it's inside the same storyline. We're inside the same storyline. We're not in the middle of it. We're not even really a big character. We're way out in the periphery. But this matters because if you zoom out and see your story in its rightful context, then what it will do is it will take your boringly predictable normal, whether it's new or old, and it will bring to it adventure and scope. It brings perspective. It's when we forget that the snake crusher wins that we will all find despair and find it quickly. In fact, we can live a whole life in despair. You see, when you evaluate your life and you are tempted to despair, remember that not only is, a, is God a promise maker, he's very good at keeping his promises. He is a promise keeper. That is the story of the Bible. He's making promises. He's keeping promises. He crushed the serpent. In fact, if we go from Genesis Three to Luke 24, turn to Luke 24 and we will look at one of the moments that talk about the resurrection. Um, we'll put it up on the screen if you want to stay in Genesis, that's fine. And listen, the resurrection story is in all four of the Gospels. Not everything is in all four of the Gospels. There's very few things that are in all four. This is one of the things that are. And I'm going to jump in in verse 1 and just read eight verses. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and, cru and be crucified and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. I, this is, <laughs> why, do you seek me uh, uh, why do you seek the living among the dead? I think goes down as my favorite question in the Bible, right? Because it, it sounds like a question that they had, kind of, they had fun asking. Like, why are you here? Like, if you came to see Jesus, you had to know he wasn't going to be dead. He said he wasn't going to be dead. He is alive. Death doesn't do what it used to do. 
Death doesn't do what it used to do. That's the old normal. It used to have a sting. That's yesterday, though. We have a new normal. Now it's just a bunch of bark with no bite. You see, an empty tomb, what it will do is it will recalibrate our current, present evil age. It reformats everything. It gives us a new normal that no tragedy can rewire because no longer does the outside world hand us despair and hope. It comes from the gospel. So a pandemic cannot rob our hope, nor, nor a holocaust, by the way, nor even death. Death can't even do it. You see, the empty tomb is an exclamation point in the story of the gospel. And not only that, it is the only anchor piece we have for hope. Without the empty tomb, you have no reason to have hope. We have no reason to be hopeful. This is how Paul tells the small Corinthian church. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're, of all people, most to be pitied. Paul's being very clear here. He's saying if Easter is a lie, then we're all playing dress up. And Luke's just a moron on stage with a suit on. Let's be honest. If Easter's a lie, then why bother? None of this even makes sense. Guilt remains. You're dead in your sins. If death gets you, death gets you. That's just the way it is. All we have is sadness and regret and pity to rule us every single day. You see how the empty tomb brings hope and value to your story. Your story has value to it if it's anchored around this hope of the resurrection. In fact, the best part about your story, friend, is the fact that it's not about you. It's like the stories in the Bible we were looking at. By the way, that's why we named the church Legacy Church, just to remind some of you. A legacy is just a treasure, a story, something that we leave the generations after us. And when we built the church, we had in mind that we would leave a legacy, a story to the generations that come after us, really a story about us that have nothing to do with us. But the best part about our story is it rotates another. It's about another. A king who has his heel on a serpent's neck, leaving death itself frustrated that it could not hold a body down. And leaving it frustrated that it no longer has the last word over the living. Listen, no matter how mundane your life is or routine, how slowly progressing your life feels right now, it is marching towards a glorious conclusion. And not even death can stop that train. Not even death can do it. Every day you live in this present evil age is another day that the tomb is still empty. Every day the tomb is still empty. This is why we've, we've kind of tripped on these stories over the last several weeks about martyrs who have greeted death with this odd joy and this smile. A few weeks ago we looked at John Bradford who was a Puritan from the early 1500s and whenever he was burned at the stake before he was locked up there, he grabbed a piece of firewood and kissed it and said this as loudly as he could so everyone can hear it. Thank God I've looked forward to this for a long time. The Lord makes me worthy. Why does he do that? It's because death for him starts the best chapter of his story. It doesn't end it. It starts the best part of his story. Listen, there's going to be a moment when God lifts us out of this 
broken present age. And if you're in Christ, he will lift you into paradise where sin and suffering will be no more. And I think it's only going to be at that moment that you and I look back and realize that death really did have no sting. We say it all the time. We'll even brag how we're not afraid to die, how we're not afraid of death. And I think sometimes we halfway mean it, right? But I think whenever we are standing and basking in the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ, I think then we will look back with some perspective and go, man, there was really nothing to be scared of. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians to the same church. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This doesn't mean that you won't experience pain and hurt in this world. Right, I mean, after all, we live in a present evil age, and we have a furious enemy that is intent on sifting as many as possible. But, but death doesn't have to do what it used to do. It doesn't do what it used to do. It no longer gets the last word. It has entirely lost its sting. And because of this, despair doesn't have to destroy you anymore. You see, typically when we would get up out of bed before Christ, before we believe in who Jesus is, our feet would hit the ground and we would immediately start to hear the lies of despair, which are you will never see peace unless you can get your hands on this. You'll never be content unless this is taken away from you. You'll never be safe unless you find this type of life. You'll never be safe. You'll never see peace. You'll never be content. And if Jesus stayed in the tomb, all of those are accurate. All of those are true. You're going to need things from this world to feel those emotions. But if we have hope in Jesus and we have hope in that God is not just a promise maker but a promise keeper and our hero has crushed the serpent, then we have a totally different set of statements that rattle around in us. Listen, no matter how hopeless and weak you think you are, You've been provided all the grace you need. All the grace you need, not just for tomorrow, but for today. That's the reality of a a future grace, a tomorrow grace, is it implies and it carries with it the promise of present grace, which means that God will give you everything you need, not just for the day of death, but for the day of life, for today. That's your new normal. I like how Paul tells the Roman church this. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is what we're celebrating today, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is crazy. Think about this. Try to get your arms around this. I'm still trying to get mine. The same divine power that lifted Jesus, and listen, he was dead. He was dead. He was cold. He had already started decaying. He didn't faint. He was dead. The same spirit that lifted him up and animated him and gave him vibrant life And then provoked him to fold his burial clothes and leave it there, which I think is pretty awesome. It's a little bit of a mockery move, I think, right? The same Holy Spirit that does this is the same one that dwells in us. Leading us to look at life differently, death differently. Leading us to be enamored and to adore who God is and what he has done for all of us. To give us a picture of what life looks like without fear. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine a life without fear. A fear of death, where death is no longer intimidating. It doesn't threaten anymore. Imagine that. I mean, really. A life where despair, it might, it might come briefly, but it's just going to find you quickly rehearsing the gospel to yourself. It's going to quickly find you 
uh, announcing and reminding your spouse, your friends around you of who God is and what he has done and how he has made promises and kept promises. Let me ask you, where is despair the deepest for you right now? Where is it the deepest? Where you have no content life, no peace, no security, no joy. Where is it? Because I want you to imagine the picture of a stone rolled away. And I'm sure what was a very impressive tomb that didn't even get to do what someone paid all that money for. And you walk in and you see the burial clothes just folded, just sitting there. And there's no smell of death because death is gone. And then you see this grin on the angel's face coming that from, from, from someone that knows something that you have not heard yet. And they emanate and speak to you and say, you won't find a dead king here. The only thing you're going to find in this tomb is death itself. Think about that. Meditate on it. And let it reformat where you feel despair. Where you feel a hopelessness. Because listen, one day death is going to find you just like it's going to find me. But that doesn't mean it has to find us scared. It doesn't have to find us frightened. If you are in Christ, death only starts the best chapter of your story. This is what John says in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Think about that. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Friends, that is our most brilliant chapter. And again, even then, the story's not about us, is it? <laughs> Listen, if you're here and you are searching for God, but you might call yourself far from God, or if you're watching right now and you would say, I am far from God, I'm just checking this Jesus thing out, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. Let, I agree with Charlie. Make no mistake, it's not, by a mis- it's, it's not just chance that you're here or you clicked on this video. You're here because of God's sovereign brilliance at this moment, listening to this at this time. God has set this up since before the stars were cast into the heavens. And maybe we can agree on a few things. One is that your normal has been always walking on the knife's edge between despair and hope. It just kind of depends on what's going on in the world. Specifically your little world. What's going on, right? Hope is something that's a little less frequent. Despair is something that's a little bit more common. And your normal probably has been one of fearing death. Which is why people like John Bradford and Paul, they confuse you. That they would greet death with a smile and a rejoice. Maybe we can agree that death for you is different. And that it does not start the best chapter of your story, but the worst. In fact, if you are not with Christ, you do not adore Christ, you do not enjoy Christ, this is in fact the best things we'll get. Death is just going to hang over your head as the worst thing that can happen in your mind. And the truth is, is it's not the worst thing that can happen. You see, when despair tells you, you will never see peace, you will never be content, you will never be safe, that's true without Jesus. That's a true statement without Jesus. But Jesus comes with a different set of statements where he says, peace be unto you, my burden is light, you shall never thirst again, I go to prepare a place for you. Different set of statements. So let me just encourage you to trust your life to someone who keeps his promises, a promise maker and a promise keeper. Trust him because he is thoughtful for you. 
and faithful to you and strong and good and hospitable and benevolent and generous. And listen, maybe 30 minutes ago you came in here and you had no spirit of God in you. You just came in with a dead, unresponsive heart, calcified. You need to know that God can change an unresponsive and critical heart into one that feels, one that responds, one that beats, one that is hungry for more. Let me just say, you don't need to be an expert in prayer. All you need to do is just repent and then turn to God. And the repentance can be very simple. It just needs to sound like, I am done sinning. I I know I'm a sinner, and I know I stand in opposition to you, and I turn from that lifestyle, and I call you king. And then just beg the Holy Spirit to change your life. Did you know? I mean, ask, ask if your life depended on it. Beg that the Holy Spirit would change your life, and you know he will. In fact, if you are already leaning towards saying something like that, God's already been working on your life driving you to this moment. And the same spirit that lifted a dead serpent crushing hero will lift your heart from death as well. Same spirit. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me and we're going to do communion together as a church and then we're going to do something a little different that we only do on Easter. And so if you are here and you are a guest um, and you're a Christian but this isn't your home church, we still invite you to take communion with us in this moment if you want to. Listen, if you're just checking things out um, and you're not, you're, you know, you're, you're not sure you're a Christian or you're pretty sure you're not, don't worry about this moment. I want you to consider what's been said. I want you to consider the gospel that's been preached, the challenge that lies towards you. Because what this table is, is it's mostly family business and it represents the moment that our hero was bruised on the cross. That's what it's going to represent for us today. In Genesis 3, God was speaking of the cross when our hero would be bruised. And that is the worst and the greatest moment in human history, as I've said before. That was a moment where Jesus' blood was stolen and donated at the same time. His body was broken, and then it was submitted all at the same time. And his death meant the end of our death. So Randy's got some communion cups, these little rip and sip cups. If you need one, didn't grab one on the way in, just raise your hand. And he will hand one to you. There's some people over here too, Randy. And what we'll do is we'll go through it as a church. And as we take this, I just want you to consider Genesis 3. That God does not just make promises, but he keeps them. He keeps them at his cost as a better Jonah, as a better David, as a better lamb. He he keeps his promises at his cost for our good and for his glory. So, Father, we're going to, we thank you for your gospel. I thank you that you were really quick to preach it. You were really quick to give us good news when really what we deserved is just a big bucket of bad news. We deserve bad news. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be erased. And you were thoughtful for us. Because not only would you demand a perfect life from us, you would know that we couldn't give it, and so you would bring a perfect life to us. You would supply the very ransom you would demand. 
And I know that when we take this communion as a representation of what was done on the cross, it's not magical, but it is supernatural, and it is powerful. It's a sermon in and of itself. So, fathers, we take the bread. We do so remembering the body that was broken for us. It was mocked. It was thrown into the swirling storm of humanity to receive the worst that humanity could throw at him. Broken and ripped and tortured and crushed for our good. And so, Lord, we take this bread in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Father, when we take the the juice, it is representative of the blood that was shed. And so not only do we remember backwards and celebrate today, but we look forward to a new wine that we will drink with you at a new banqueting table in this precious place that you've prepared for us. In Revelation 21, this spot that you've crafted, you made for us specifically. And it's a place at a table that we shouldn't even be sitting at. But you've grafted us into a family that we could never be born into unless you would bring us in and adopt us. So it's not just juice. It represents so much more for us. So we drink this not just in remembrance but in celebration and in thankfulness to you. Go ahead and take the juice. What I'd love to do at this point is just read something with you. This is, by the way, this is called a doxology. It's called This is Jesus. This is from Milito of Sardis. This is 167 years, so it's about 130 years after Christ. This is the oldest Easter sermon ever recorded, or at least an excerpt of it. Okay, so I'm going to read some of it, and then when it's in bold, I'm going to have you read it with me. Melito says, when the Lord had clothed himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer and had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned and had been judged for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the one who was buried, he rose up from the dead and cried out with this voice, who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Therefore come, all families of men, You who have been befouled with sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up by my right hand. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth, who in the beginning created man, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who became human via the virgin, who was hanged upon a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was resurrected from the dead, who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, 
who has authority to judge and to save everything, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end, an indescribable beginning and an incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is the Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the one who rose up from the dead. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He reveals the Father and is revealed by the Father. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen and amen.